6, please. Mike, is it right that the calendar, you end up with the same day of the year on the, the day of the week, uh, seven, seven years or something? Is that how it works? Something like that. Like July 4th comes up on a Sunday every, is it seven years? Anyway, I thought you knew these number of sense things. If I have math questions, I usually go to Mike. The other day I said, hey, Mike, what you doing? He said, I was just checking out my old differential equations textbook, dusting off some of that. I wanted to redo some, you know, work through some calculus things. He did. He, that's what he was doing. I said, I'll call you later. <laughs> All right, we just went through a really interesting section in 1 Timothy last Sunday. Very challenging portion of scripture. And the challenge is put it together. Put verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 together with verses 3 through 9. And we worked through that and it was it was very exciting because it's so countercultural. It goes completely against what the popular morality of your culture would say and here's why. Because what the Bible is looking at is eternity and the mission you have to do is involving people's eternal destinies. Your temporal economic circumstance isn't life. It's the context in which you live. And the context in which you live is your temporal mission context. You have work to do. And so whether you're a slave or free is important, but it's not the most important thing. What's the most important thing? The work, the power of the spirit, the eternal rewards you gain in obe obedience to the Lord Jesus and, and walking by the spirit. That's what's most important. So your temporal mission context may involve being a slave. Well, there's a right way to be that in verses one and two. And the reason people reject that teaching verses three through nine of first Timothy chapter six, the reason they'll reject it is because they're not thinking eternally. They're rejecting the sound words of the Lord Jesus. And so two different ways of thinking about life. There is the, let me, let me borrow uh, Karl Marx. Karl Marx said, among others said, that religion is the opiate of the masses. There's a long quote where he said this, but and basically the, 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 the mass of people who are peasants in Europe are able to be peasants and struggle along, be poor because of their religion, because they're looking to the future. And that's exactly what Paul's saying in First uh, Timothy 6, 1 and 2, is that you have uh, an eternal life and you're serving in this temporal frame, you're serving God toward that eternal destiny. And so you're not supposed to be so worried about your temporal circumstances. But Marx is a materialist and he says, there, all there is is matter. There is no God. There's no, you know, John Lennon, no religion too. No heaven, no hell. In the song, Imagine, very Marxist song. He's saying that there's only the physical material world. And so all you have is, is the 80 whatever years and that's it. And so everybody needs to get an equal shot, equal share, equal outcome in that because all there is is the material. And if you, if you say there's no God, if you say there's no eternity, if you say there's no reason for our existence besides our, our experience, our, our comfort, catching the game, whatever it is, if there's no reason for you to exist from a creator who's got a reason he made you, then maybe we should just think about making everybody have an equal outcome. 
but that's not how we're made and that's not how we live. And every time it's been tried, it's been a big fail. Now, my sermon isn't about Marxism. I'm just showing you there's two ways of thinking. There's now, all there is is here and now. And then there's the eternal perspective that is our hope. The biblical doctrine of hope next hour is going to fixate on this because it's a major theme in Timothy. Major theme in the New Testament. If I think about only this life and we get caught and trapped into that, just are my little, what am I doing today? I don't feel very good. I want to have this fun thing that whatever we fixate on temporally, when we lose perspective on the eternal thing, the judgment seat of Christ, the resurrection, what's coming. When you lose track of God's promises, you end up with this narrow, basically unbelieving mindset. I call it functional atheism. The apostle Paul says, if we um, walk according to the flesh in Romans chapter eight, then we must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death, the deeds of the body, you'll live. And so that's the, that, the, the two mindsets. One of them is focused on here and now, and one of them is focused on eternity and therefore living here and now serving eternity. And that's, that's one way of framing what the Bible will do with you and your heart and your thinking um, as you go forward. But this is why Paul goes after those who reject the word and calls them basically arrogant, full of themselves, and to the point of being divorced from reality. And then he, and then he shifts quickly to the world in its rejection of God's word and attacks greed or the desire for wealth. Not necessarily greed, but just focusing on temporal gain wealth in this time, in this life, and the, those who are after wealth. It's very interesting that he goes from being slaves to those who reject the word, to those who are seeking to be wealthy because they're serving only this frame of life. For those who want to get rich in verse nine, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish, harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So Paul goes, again, he goes from Christian slaves and how they should think about their service as slaves for, for the gospel's sake to those that reject the word because they're arrogant to where that thought process takes you to the love of wealth. It's an interesting challenge. That's why I said it's very challenging. And then we saw verses 11 through 16, where the apostle is teaching Timothy the summary expectation, but flee from these things, you man of God and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness run after actively run after what Paul in Galatians calls the fruit of the spirit, the work of the spirit. in you, you have to choose to love. You have to choose to be patient. You have to diligently seek to be faithful, to be, um, to be long suffering, to be gentle. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Right after telling Timothy to be gentle, he says, fight. Those are not contradictions. Gentleness, not expecting the letter of the law out of someone, not expecting everybody to just perform just so, but having a little grace. That's what gentleness is talking about toward people. Having a little bit of a relaxed mental attitude. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And to which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, in this life, I can focus on, well, what's my bank account say? What kind of mark am I making on the world? What can I get out of this life? And I'm trying to accrue for myself. But if I stop thinking about just this life and I look at what God has given me this life for and start looking at him and what he said, now I'm looking for Jesus. I'm waiting for him 
because at the end of this exercise of several decades of life is a judgment, not the great white throne judgment, not the sheep and the goats judgment, but the judgment of your works as a believer. And you read about it in several places. My favorite two are 1 Corinthians chapter three, where your works are tested by fire. And in 2 Corinthians chapter five, where we must all stand or appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive recompense for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. This judgment is part of your destiny. It's part of your future. You can't get away from it. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to study hard. The test date is a date you don't know. And so you need to make every day count in anticipation of this evaluation. And, um, and don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to make you eternally mercenary where you're looking to just accrue riches in heaven. But Jesus does say, store up your treasures in heaven. Right? There is the eternal bank account. There is the recompense, the payback for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. There is coming the evaluation and it's designed by God to motivate us. He's an excellent leader. He's an excellent motivator. So he says, so I want you to keep this commandment of fight the good fight without stain or reproach until the Lord Jesus comes. And so you just assume you'll never retire from this, this fight of the faith. And he'll bring about the proper time. The father is going to bring about the coming of Christ, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. What the apostle Paul just did for us is take us from the things that you get distracted by and then say you have a purpose in your life and then fixate your attention in that doxology on God. Think of him. The common objection to the lifestyle that Paul is, is proposing is we can't see him. Seeing is believing. And I don't know it unless I see it. But the scriptures say you can't see him right here in this passage. No one's ever seen God in his essential being. He's a spirit. He's a, he's a being of spirit. But we want to see because we're so constrained. We're so used to just what we can see and taste and touch and hear and feel. God made those senses. There is an analogy between us and God in, in, the, in that way. We're made in his image. But the way he has revealed himself to us, it turns out, is not by us looking at him with our eyes. It's knowing him with our hearts through what he's given us. And that's why the word, the logos, that's why you have to be in the word. You don't know God without his word. You can know something of God from his creation. You can go to Grand Canyon and marvel at what God did in apparently just a very short time as a consequence of the flood of Genesis chapter seven through nine. <laughs> you can go see the grandeur of God's vistas. You can go see the continental divide and all the beauty of this earth, of this, of this continent, this great land, the United States. You can't see God. You see his effects. But in his word, through what Paul just wrote about him, you see him in terms of who he is. You get to know him. And that's the way we come to know him. Now, who is sovereign? Me or God? God. So he's, who gets to decide how we come to know him? Me or God? God. And that's the whole thing is the word of God is given so we'll know him. 
And I've talked a lot already about serving him, about being about his work. There's no serving God without knowing him. It's not a, a job, it's a relationship. It's a family affair. So after the great doxology, Paul then has some more words for those who are rich in this present world. Back to the wealthy. Is it wrong to be wealthy? Of course not. A lot of wealthy people have a lot of bad ideas. And we just know that by looking and listening and hearing their ideas. It'll be a cold day in July before the kinds of things that we see in this culture are, are, are the norm. But here we are. I, when I got here, um, the, the lying thermometer on, that, on my car said 58 degrees. Maybe that was right. July 4th, 58 degrees. I was just talking the other day about how nice it was not to be in you know, the, the blistering heat of Texas. At this rate, we're in trouble. <laughs> no, it's going to turn the corner tomorrow. But uh, culture we're in will say all kinds of interesting things about wealth. I remember a time in political popular discourse where there were the two Americas. Remember that? There were the rich get richer and the poor keep getting poorer. Now the people that will say that are the super, super, super rich. It's really strange. Quantitative easing and various policies will benefit people that are leveraged in the stock market and not others. And it's, and so I'm not, I, I'm certainly not, I'm the opposite of advocating class warfare. I'm just saying um, those that used to say the rich get richer are now the super multimillionaires. <laughs> And, and it's almost given in this culture that if you find somebody that's super rich, I was just, the kids were asking me, who owns Walmart? Well, there was a guy named Sam Walton. He's a lefty, right? Um, well, what about the guy that owns Amazon? A serious lefty. Like you, you go through the, the super rich people and you're like, wow, these, these people do not think like what we're reading here. But some Christians are wealthy. It's been the thing and God uses them very often. They have the gift of giving. That's a spiritual gift that God has given. And, uh, and that's not, if you're wealthy, that doesn't mean you're gifted to give or something like that. But listen to what we hear from the apostle Paul to those rich in this world. Now, Jesus said, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom. It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom. Now in the context, they thought wealth was good with God. So if you're rich, then God favored you, which is true. And so that means that God loves you or God approves of you more than the poor. And so Jesus is saying, no, it's impossible for the rich to get into heaven unless Jesus does something that makes it possible and dies for them. That's the, that's the message. But see, the, the problem of wealth is that we're good. We don't need. We could preach this message of those who are rich Compared to the people Paul is writing to, we could preach this message of those to rich to everyone who lives in this country. Because compared to them, we are set. We are comfortable. We are provisioned. We have better than the kings of antiquity. Goat. <laughs> Just imagine taking Solomon to Wendy's. He would say, it's a miracle. It's the most marvelous, rich, delightful thing I've ever experienced in all my days. What? These French fries or whatever. 
it's hard to imagine what it was like before central air and electricity. But because of these factors, because of the freedoms that we've enjoyed, because of the blood of our heroes that have watered the soil of the battlefields of our, of our nation's history, we have this freedom and we have this prosperity. So this message is an American message for all those who enjoy the freedom that we have and the wealth that it has brought to the whole aggregate of our country. All boats do rise with the water, with the water level. So don't, uh, don't read verses 17 through 19 with an attitude that these people he's talking to that are rich are you know those three or four people we could think of. This is all of us. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. The word there for conceited means to think highly of themselves, to highly think on themselves, or to fix their hope, the word for to hope, to fix their elpizo, to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It's a classic thing. I hope your mom told you if she didn't, then you tell your kids and I'll tell you. Consider the source. Don't focus on the blessing itself. Focus on the source of the blessing. He doesn't say that they're wrong for being rich. He says they need to think about why they're rich because God is the owner of all things and he's shared it. He's distributed it. And it says that he's the creator of all things who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So you don't fix your hope on the temporal, on the thing in this life. And this is very hard for us to do. We are celebrating our country's 245th birthday today. People's claims that it's older, the country's older and wickeder than it has been, notwithstanding. Our birthday is 1776, July 4th, Declaration of Independence. We, this is our birthday. And we celebrate it and we can fix our hope on the future of the dollar being the international trade currency. We can fix our hope on the lifestyle that we have. We can fix our hope on the security that we enjoy because of the, I mean, we're too big to fail or something. And that would be foolish to do. We could fix our hope on political process, fix it on humans in this way or that. If I could only just get this relationship with this person, been working hard and now she's paying me some attention, there's my hope. Any temporal thing that you put your hope in is capable of failing you. And I believe inevitably will fail you, but God never will. And that's why it says fixing our hope on God. So it's hard for a wealthy person not to look at his bank account and say, yeah, but I'm rich. Yeah, but I'll be okay. And, and this is a constant repentance for, for the wealthy. For people in a good situation, you need to take it back to God and thank him. And you need to put your hope on him because he's the source. So if you lose everything you have, but you have God, the, the thought process is if I, if I was to lose it all tomorrow, but I have God, I'm okay because I have him. Not, oh no, everything's lost, right? We're not jumping out of buildings because the stock market crashes or something because I came here with nothing. I will take nothing of this life with me except the word that God has put in my heart and my relationship with him. And so I'm good, I'm fine. And that's the attitude, that's the hope that we're talking about. And then he says, you need to give them some instructions in verses 18 and 20, or 18 and 19. Instruct or command them to do good. There's one word for to do good. It's, it's a word that means to do good works, to be rich in good works. So he doubles down to do good works, but then to be 
rich in good works. And in the first word to do good, it's agathos. It's agatha um, ergo. Uh, er, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it's, it's agathos plus the word to work. And then the second one, it's kalos plus works. Good, beautiful, attractive. So he uses the synonyms for good because he's, this is how Paul thinks. He, he's painting the picture for, with different facets. So you need to do good works and you need to be rich. Your wealth is in good works. And that's the attitude the apostle Paul has about money, about wealth. And this is um, the next thing. The third thing he says is to be generous and ready to share. To be generous and ready to share. And there's an outcome. And by doing this, they're storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. See, your, fu your future foundation isn't your money. It's not your wealth. It's not, I've worked hard and I've, I've got my retirement. That's not your foundation. Because this life is not about retiring and then you know, uh, dying under favorable circumstances. This life, every day of it is about the mission and the outcome in our valuation. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So that they can have the real wealth. They can have the real riches, which is eternal. So in a way, the, the rich are at a disadvantage because they have a heavy distraction from our hope. In a way, there's a disadvantage to the eternal bank account. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. I keep talking about the mission and I, I, it's not my idea. I wouldn't have thought of it this way, but the apostle Paul does this. I'm going to flip over real quick. If you want to turn with me to first Corinthians chapter three, he's going outside of first Timothy. It's not, it's a, it's a no, no when you're surveying a book going fast, like we are through first Timothy, but in first Corinthians three, The apostle Paul is correcting the Corinthians about their concern over who is their teacher. I'm listening to Apollos and now we have to listen to Paul again. I'd rather hear Apollos. He's a better speaker. We're the Apollos faction. We're the Paul of the Paul faction. Well, we heard Peter once we like him better. Well, we like Jesus and that division, that carnality, that wickedness is dividing the body of Christ over who is our favorite teacher. And we're not supposed to do that. It's called the Corinthian error. That's what we've called it historically. The Corinthian error is segregating, atomizing the church over who is the pastor. And then Paul, from that context, is going to teach them uh, something autobiographical, something about himself. He says, who is Apollos in verse five? And who's Paul? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one. I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. See, I'm doing this work of making disciples. It's important in context. You see, that's the work he's talking about. So that neither the one who plants with the gospel or the one who waters with the word so that they grow in the word, they're not, we're not anything, but God is the one who causes the growth. And he who plants, the one who waters are one. Sorry, he who plants, the one who waters, they're one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. The rewards in 1 Corinthians 3 are about the mission of the gospel in making disciples. I just have to make that clear because this is your gold, silver, precious stones passage. It's the mission that he's talking about. For we are God's fellow workers. You are his field, God's building. According to the grace God, which God has given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. See, they're working. They're building an edifice called the body of Christ. And they're building in to the lives of these believers and edifying them so that they can be about the work. He says, no one, no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ. 
Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day. That's the day of evaluation. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet. So as through fire. So understand that wonderful passage about operation singed eyebrows, where your life's work for the Lord is evaluated and tested by fire. And if it's worthless work, if you're building with the wrong materials, the fire of testing consumes it. That's the picture he has. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a purification of the, of the, the precious materials and all the dross, all the chaff is burned off. Whatever's left from that work that you did, that was in the power of the spirit, that was about God's word, that was using the right materials, you get back. It's your reward. It's your eternal reward. This is believers talking to believers. Beloved, this has nothing to do with whether I'm going to heaven or not. It's only for believers. The only way you can get into heaven is Jesus Christ offers you eternal life and you have to trust him that he paid for your sins that he paid for your sins on the cross that he is offering you this eternal life and you receive it by faith that's the only thing you can do but as we continue to trust him he said now here's some things i want from you i've given you the holy spirit i've given you a spiritual gift i've given you my word use these assets to grow with respect to your salvation so that you can be part of the project of telling others, of making disciples of others. And that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 3 when he's correcting the Corinthians about um, the, the Corinthian error, uh, list, figure, you know, dividing over who the teacher is. Look, I'm going to face God on my terms, uh, the terms that, that I've served him. Apollos is going to face judgment for his works, and we're all going to be tested, and that's really what matters because we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. One more over to 2 Corinthians 5, please. Second Corinthians is handily printed in my Bible right after 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5, or 2 Corinthians 5, saith. We'll just grab it in verse verse 1. We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, that's our body, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's the resurrection body. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. Do you know that if you're a believer in Christ, then you will inherit, part of your eternal inheritance from Jesus is a resurrection body, which can inherit eternity with him. You can't inherit eternity with the temporal body, with the physical body that is, that is fleshly. You have to have a physical, spiritual body that inherits eternity with Christ. Well, how do I know it's going to be a physical body? Because Jesus in resurrection is in a physical body. And we have all the resurrection accounts that tell us about his experiences with the disciples. You are going to have this body made new. That's the resurrection, eternal, spiritual, physical body. And that's, the, that's what he's talking about. It's eternal in the heavens for indeed in this house, we groan longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And as much as we having put it on will be, will not be found naked for indeed, while we are in this tent, temporal dwelling, right? In this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, I think that's a picture of the resurrection. What is mortal will be swallowed up by life. 
This body's dying. Your spirit, your soul, if you have Christ, you're not dying. You have a new you. That's the new, the new man in Christ. You are a new nature. You have a new nature in Christ. You're born again, but your body's dying. It's not yet redeemed. It's not yet recovered. And that's what he's talking about here. It'll be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the spirit as a pledge. Ephesians chapter one, verse 14, the spirit is the, the earnest of the inheritance. The spirit is the pledge, the promise that if you have the Holy spirit, then God has work and enablement for you to be successful in his work. So you can get the fullness of the rewards he wants to give you. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage. This is second Corinthians two or five, eight. We're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather, listen, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. I'd rather be with the Lord than in this dying, temporal, broken body. Now, Paul's been there. He'll tell you in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, he's been there. He knows it's better. We're scared. All we know is this from our experience. Now, Paul's experienced the bliss of being with the Lord and he'd rather be there. The takeaway there is you shouldn't fear death if you're trusting in God and you're paying attention to what Paul says about it. But listen to what he finally says. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, at home with God or absent from him here on earth, it is our ambition to be what? Pleasing to him. Personal relationship with God. And this is what we're going for, for we must all appear before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. That's one word. Judgment seat is Bema. It's the place where the magistrate would sit and hear uh, people's um, cases or where he would render his evaluations. We must all appear before the Bema of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, paid back for his deeds, works in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We is not talking about unbelievers at the great white throne judgment where everyone at that judgment is judged for his works and thrown into the lake of fire because the, judge, the, the works of man do not accomplish the righteousness of God. You don't want to be judged for your works in the great white throne judgment. That is the final destiny of all who have not trusted in Christ and the devil and his fallen angels. This is the judgment seat of Christ. It's for believers. When will we put it on the future time timeline? It is, I believe, at the reception of the resurrection body immediately following what has historically, traditionally been called the rapture because of Latin, but it's mentioned, the catching up, the translation of the church is mentioned in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, the clearest passage on it. But Paul talks about it also in 1 Corinthians 15 and several other places. The first assembly, the first time all the body of Christ, all believers in Christ from Pentecost until this translation event occur, the first time we'll ever all be gathered together to meet our savior will be this event. We call it the rapture. It is imminent. It is any time. It is the next thing. We're prophet, it's prophesied to happen and there is nothing prophesied to happen before it happens. There's nothing we're told has to happen first. The Antichrist can't be revealed in 2 Thessalonians 3 until the restrainer is removed. I believe it's the Holy Spirit working through the church. The presence of the church on earth. When the church is removed, 
then the Antichrist is to be revealed. That's the conclusion I gained from reading Paul in 2 Thessalonians. But this event, this is the next thing and you're anticipating it. You're not failing to do the works of God because, well, the rapture's coming. Rather, you know the rapture comes with the judgment seat of Christ and you're working toward it. You're expecting it and you're counting today toward the rapture and the Bema. You're counting today. I'm serving God because there's coming an evaluation. Now, I know we have a relationship with God and we don't want to need to be structured by a coming evaluation. We want to just serve him because we love him. But we're broken and we're weak and this teaching helps us so much focus on the inevitability of what's coming because we waste time, because we waste our lives, because we fritter and deviate from what we're supposed to be about and we, and we putter around and we miss opportunities. So this doctrine is designed to give you hope, comfort one another with these words. All those who have already died who are Christians, they're gonna rise first and then we will be caught up. We, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds. That's the doctrine of what we've called the rapture, the translation of the church. It's the point where you receive your resurrection body. If you die before that event, as all of Christians have done through all of church history, you get your resurrection body first. And those who are alive and remain, Paul says, we who are alive and remain, they go up second. But the point is that we all forevermore from then on are with the Lord. And this, this is the event, I believe, that will immediately precede the judgment, the Bema seat of Christ, when Jesus renders an evaluation for your works. Why? Because in that period of his judgment, his tribulation on planet earth of the earth dwellers, of his turning Israel to look on the one whom they've pierced and calling on his name and receiving their Messiah finally at the second advent. This time of tribulation on earth is also a time of preparation for those who will rule with him in his kingdom. And it's time to assess successes and it's time to, to, to award the rewards that need to be rewarded because it will be time for us to come back with him at the conclusion of the tribulation for him to set up his kingdom. And you and I and all who know Christ have been called out to be part of his administration in this coming and eternal kingdom. This is biblical Christian eschatology and the Christian life is lived in the hope of what God has promised is coming. And that's the way the thing it plays out for you. That's what's coming is you're going to be raptured and then you're going to be judged for your works in the body. And today it could happen. But if it doesn't happen today, you were given today to serve. First Corinthians three says the testing of my works is the works I did in building in the ministry of the gospel. That's Paul's personal account of his works. 2 Corinthians 5 says we better live our lives with an ambition to be pleasing to the Lord because we're all coming to this judgment. Matthew 28 says all those who are my disciples need to be about my business of making more disciples. He who has the ears to hear, let him hear. This is what we're here for. This is what we're doing. And so Paul is showing us that again in 1 Timothy through the entire letter. So those that are rich, back to our passage, those that are rich in this, in this present world, they don't need to put their hope in riches. It's a little test, a little test you can do for yourself. If I lost everything, where would I be? Would I fall apart? Would I, would I want, to, want to just end it all because I didn't have the lifestyle that I was used to? That's temporal worldly thinking. That's the way the world thinks. But if you'll get in the word, no, my life itself is the riches that I have. The time God's given me, the opportunity, the power of the spirit. I am just as wealthy in Christ 
as a billionaire as I am with nothing because I have Christ and because I have the spirit and I've got the work that he's called me to do. So I need to be feeding myself, nourishing in the word so that I can be about that work. And therefore you'll be stirring up for yourselves in verse 19, storing up the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of what is life indeed. Oh, Timothy, let's close the book. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing or contradictory arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. I like how the New American Standard put that in quotes. It's falsely called gnosis, knowledge, which some have professed and by professing have gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. He concludes Timothy on a final warning. He opened first Timothy on a warning. You're going to have to go into Ephesus and correct those that are teaching false teaching. He concludes on, you're going to have to go in and correct those that are doing the false teaching in Ephesus. Remember, that's what first Timothy is. It's prepping Timothy to go do this work in this troubled church that has some leadership that's going awry. So Timothy, you go take over. We're gonna have to go designate elders. We're gonna have to go weed out some of the problems. And those, I think, by the way, in that context, the elder list in 1 Timothy 3, the deacon list, this is to help Timothy weed out people that aren't fit to, to, to rule, but are in, in authority. He's, he's, he's given the criteria, hey, you're not really an elder. You're gonna have to step down. That's what's gonna have to happen in this church in Ephesus. Timothy was successful. We have the letter uh, to the Ephesians in uh, Revelation 2 from the Lord Jesus. Timothy was successful. Uh, because they're doctrinally sound, even though they, by the time John writes in Revelation chapters two and three, they've lost their first love. They're doctrinally sound. They're spiritually uh, in need of some remediation. But there's this word called knowledge that is coming up, this cropping up thing. Paul writes this somewhere before, sometime before he dies. Amen. You with me? Paul wrote this before he died and uh, he dies uh, somewhere in the mid sixties. AD. All right. Gnosticism, the mystery religion of Gnosticism that produced a lot of literature, isn't really on fire until the mid second century, according to the best archaeology and historical reconstruction. Gnosticism isn't like a big thing until, until uh, 125, somewhere in there. Second century, 125, 150 AD. The early uh, church writers that come after are dealing with Gnosticism big time. But there is this statement, that what is falsely called knowledge. And what most Bible believing expositors will say about this is that it isn't full blown second century Gnosticism. It's the beginnings of it. It's the beginnings because Gnosticism involves a lot of human philosophy, bars a lot of Plato and, and tweaks it a little bit, a lot of mythology and a lot of Christianity. And it tries to mix it all up into a poison smoothie that, uh, that tastes horrible. The ultimate conclusion of Gnosticism is evident in the so-called gospel of Thomas. Have you heard of the other gospels? Hey, there's other gospels. A couple of years ago, they talked about the gospel of Judas that someone had dug up. Guess what? People have been writing books for a long time. And people have been writing things to make people sensationalized and to read them or buy them for a long time. And there are all kinds of things that the church all along has said, that's not one of us. Gospel of Thomas is such a document. It's a, it's a Gnostic book. It's not a gospel. Gospel of Judas. There are lots of pseudepigraphal works, we call it. It means 
pseudo lie and epigraphical writing. They're, they're, they're written documents that claim to be from Thomas, the apostle, or from Judas, the apostle, or Judas, the Iscariot, who was not an apostle, was, was a disciple who died. Um, and they claim to be written by these. There's a, there's a gospel of Abraham. There's all kinds of books that are written that are supposedly by these people. The book of Enoch is this. And they're not. They're not written by Christians. They're not written, excuse me, they're not written by the apostles that, that claim to be. Now, maybe a Christian wrote it, but the gospel of Thomas, as an example, is not a Christian document. The shepherd of Hamas, early Christian document, is uh, by a guy named Hermas, and he wrote the book called The Shepherd, and it is a Christian document. And it is, like all theology written after the Bible, good and bad. There are good things in it and bad things in it that aren't accurate with the scriptures. And everything gets tested by the scriptures. All right? But, but there's this book called The Gospel of Thomas. You understand the conclusion of The Gospel of Thomas is that the ultimate end state is that man and woman be combined into one. That's Gnosticism. It was dramatically portrayed in the, the book, um, The Da Vinci Code, and the movie, The Da Vinci Code, that once you unpeel all the layers of secrecy behind the mystery cult, uh, we've got the knowledge and come in here and we'll teach you and it's a secret and you have to follow all the clues to get to the real secret. When you end up at the ritual that is their great rite of, of, uh, of consecration, it's just sex. We're back to the old Baalist phallic cult. We're back to worshiping the gods through the act of procreation. Ta-da! And all those people that said, well, I can't really read my Bible anymore because I read a fiction book by Dan Brown. If you really thought about what you're trading, the riches of divine grace in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, for the act of procreation, the blessing God gave us, the blessing of marriage. I mean, that's ridiculous. But everybody's always looking for something. And this is the foolishness of superstitious speculations that Paul warns Timothy about in the letter. Those that will trade God for sex or the worship of God for the worship of sex or something. Those that will, will occupy themselves with that kind of uh, counterfeit have been with us, I think, since the beginning. It's the source of all, in my view, it's the source of all pagan religion. There's always, always you can find the phallic cult, the worship of sex all through the pagan religions. I think it's one of Satan's greatest avenues of attack on mankind. And it's true, something Timothy's dealing with in Ephesus. But I think that as we see the, the poverty of that substitution, that we see the riches of God's grace rejected, because we have to read it and have to study it and have to come to know God his way. We reject that. And then we go for something silly like a secret cult or mystery sex religion or something. We should have some compassion, not on the thought, not on the ideas. The ideas are satanic, but Satan, the devil has deceived the nations. So we need to have some compassion about this deception. I don't think you should fear it. You should certainly not get taken up in it. And discernment comes from the word. Spend time. The word will filter the inputs and tell you how to think about them. That's how I know how to think about this. But let's have some compassion. 
I must conclude my study of 1 Timothy that way. I must conclude with compassion for those that are deceived, that are taken astray, that are confused, that have sold out the richest thing they have, the most wonderful thing. You, can, you can't buy it. It's the time of your life for something less. We need to have compassion because of what Paul tells Timothy in chapter 1 when he opens up and tells him what we're doing here. As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And here it is. They want to dazzle you with secrets. YouTube is full of it today in more ways than one, but it's full of this will tell you the real thing. I could spend 10 minutes on YouTube and find a whole world of lies that sound like they're coming from an authoritative source. But the goal of our instruction, the proof in the pudding, the outcome of taking in the word and then living it out is love, agape love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. And so the bad teaching that you're getting in Ephesus involves legalism, it involves asceticism, and it involves nascent or baby Gnosticism. Anything but the word of Christ richly dwelling in you, producing the fruit of the spirit, which is love anything but God's word. And this is what we'll do. Anything but God's word. Anything but God's word. Well, may God bless us as we contemplate the mission he has for us. None of us is an apostle. None of us is an apostolic emissary taught directly face-to-face by an apostle. But we have been able to eavesdrop on a conversation originally between two people that God inspired for us to grow through. And now we know how to conduct ourselves in the household of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the faith, the local church. Now we know what we're supposed to be about. And now we have something to measure our performance by. Do we love? Do we love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith? Our father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry of the apostle Paul to Timothy, the ministry of Timothy to the Ephesians and the way this historical event Recorded here in this Holy Spirit-inspired text gives us the food, the energy, the strength we need to do the work that you have for us to do. Father, we came here today, most of us already knowing the answer is your word. The answer is a relationship with you through your word. But now we know better what that looks like and how to be about it. Father, we in the United States, because of your providence in our history, are the wealthy. The Apostle Paul talks about but we don't set our hope on our earthly temporal riches. Our hope is in Christ and the wealth of freedom. We can get in a car anytime we want and go anywhere we want in this country. The freedom that we have, Father, is for a purpose. Let us be, let us experience the joy of success in the work. Father, it's such a joy. I pray that everyone here will have that sense that they have a role to play in the grand strategy, the grand campaign you have of making disciples. 
who will one day rule with Christ. Father, help us have that eternal hope. Help us have that temporal joy of knowing we're getting it right. Let us see many come to Christ because we have a witness in their lives. Each one of us, Father, we will praise you and honor you and glorify you every time. We ask it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. amen.